This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. Uh, welcome to the Pollock Theater. Uh, I am your host, Matt Ryan. Script to Screen is brought to you by the Department of Film and Media Studies, the Carsey Wolf Center. Uh, my partner, Joe Palladino, who's back there. And I, a special shout-out to all these lovely interns you see on our cameras right now. Pollock Theater interns help produce this event. It's part of their training. So uh, we're very, very proud that uh, this is the launch of our second season. It's good to screen, so we're proud Tom has come to join us. Um, so let's, let's talk a little about Tom. Tom won an Oscar for this film, of course. Thank you. He, he lived out his fantasy as uh, shrinking small children while writing Hunting and Shrunk the Kids. Uh, he explored Bill Murray's psyche and What About Bob? He also wrote and directed Eight Heads in a Duffel Baths. So please give t- uh, Tom a warm welcome. Tom Schultz. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So we're going to dive right into a uh, dive into your psyche, your writer's psyche, with a hardball Uh-oh. question. Uh-oh. Okay. Uh, where do you keep your Oscar, and what do you polish it with? <laughs> uh, I keep it up on a shelf, and I never polish it. So <laughs> it's solid gold. It doesn't need polish. <laughs> so how many years from the time you finished, or how much time before you finished the script and moved to, uh, you know... The studio said, ooh, we like that. Uh, well, they, they didn't like it for a long time. So I, I wrote it in 85, and uh, they started liking it in 87, and then liked it enough to make it in 88, and so forth. So, And was which, there, what, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, four, in four years, you know, felt like a lifetime back then, but I, I think it's a lot of luck just to get it, made it all, but four years pretty quick. Wow. So, yeah. Did the studio have any reaction to uh, the suicide theme, or, or was it, you know, uh, the, the you know, the, the first meeting I had with the studio executive, uh, she said, uh, it's, you know, we really loved it here, all the, the vice presidents and so forth, but uh, we, would, we won't even give it to the studio head because he'll pass, and uh, we think you should consider turning it into a dance movie. Get rid of get rid of the get rid of the point. And they said we even thought of a title, the Sultans of Strut. <laughs> said, okay, and uh, so just think about that, and you could use you know a lot of the same stuff. And, uh, so I just kind of scratched my head and went home and thought, okay, uh, and maybe that was because the movie Fame had had just come out. Mm-hmm. And maybe that might have been the reason, but uh, so. So as a writer, you would be a little. I don't want to see that. Uh. They're not destroying uh, my story. Uh, yeah, I, I think... Uh, and then a couple of years later, the same, that same studio bought it. So, huh. yeah. So. Well, that part, Go sometimes figure. the studios change or the... the, the you know, it was the same administration, same, same people. Administration? Same people. Uh, same executive sitting in the room when I got there saying, oh, we love this so much, we're so glad they bought it. 
Okay, thank you. <laughs> so. um, what you uh, one of my favorite directors has been Peter Weir. So anybody Peter yeah, Weir fan? Mine too. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'll just run through the title so some of the students might not know. Uh, Gallipoli, sorry, Mel Gibson. You're living dangerously. Witness with Harrison Ford, and The Truman Show, which is one of my yeah. yeah. Uh, what was it? What was it like working with Peter? Oh, you know, he, he was stories. amazing. Absolutely amazing. Great, great guy. Fun to work with. Incredibly relaxed. Would cook dinner for a lot of us after each day's shoot, and uh, just just uh, fun, really. And uh, played music on the set. People would come dance around the music. The music would turn off. And we'd shoot a shot. It was a strangely kind of miraculous kind of thing. It was like the school of miracle directing. You know, he never talked to the actors, or very rarely talked to the actors. When he did, he would just have little gems of things to say. So it was, it, you know, I was there also to learn how to direct. It was hard because you just go, what is he doing? He's, you know, but, but uh, he just, uh, and is, has a kind of painter's vision of the world. You know, we'd be walking down the street and he'd go, oh my God, look at the shadow of that tree. On the, on the sidewalk, that that kind of eye for things. That <laughs> and, uh, backstage in the green room, we were talking a little, and you mentioned there, there was a few other directors, though. Yeah, there so were. They, they should go nameless, I think. No, but yeah. it was like was it just uh, maybe the first two didn't connect with the story? Or? No, no, they connected, but oh. uh, the first one had problems from the studio's perspective. They wanted the studio wanted Robin Williams, and they wouldn't. Uh, the, the Robin wouldn't wouldn't say no, but he wouldn't say yes to working with that director. In fact, we. We prepped the movie, built the sets. It's going to be shot outside of Atlanta, and Robin just didn't show up for the first day. Of, I mean, he never said he would, but they kept Disney kept trying to pressure him by, you know, moving forward. And after the first day, he didn't show up. They canceled the production, burned the sets. We actually have Jeez. dailies of the sets burning. <laughs> and, uh, um, and I thought, well, that's the end of that. And then another director came in, and uh, they, he got in an argument with the studio over the start date, so they took it away from him, and, and Peter, for lucky, fortunately for me, Peter was, was available and came in and did it. So. Well, uh, now, the scenes in the cave actually one of my most fascinating scenes, because mm-hmm. from a director's standpoint, it's hard to do that. Was there any was there any difficulty making those scenes? Because I thought they were the most one of the most powerful in the movie. Hard the to boys, do dramatically. Like the boys dramatically and visually because they're in a cave in a tight spot. But. Yeah, uh, the cave was we built the cave, so it was in on the set, and um, uh, you know Peter worried a lot about that. I remember walking into the set one day because there was a little hole at the top of the cave for the smoke to go out, and they had the camera shooting down into the cave that way with a big wide-angle lens and you could sort of see the boys. And just as we were start getting ready to shoot, Peter went, what am I doing? This is like a film school shot. Get rid of that. So we moved the camera back down and he just said, you know, it's a tight spot. We'll just shoot it normally and that's, that's the way we'll do it. And it was... So for him, it was effortless somehow. Yeah. Uh, you talked a little about Robin Williams. So... Uh, where it was so he was a big selling point to the studio to go with the movie. Or? Yeah, the the day that the first day we met, uh, Jeff Katzenberg, who ran Disney at the time, said, "You know, we think Robin Williams, who we have in Good Morning Vietnam, would be the right guy for this." So, uh, and I had seen Robin do improv in L.A. back way back then, before Mork and Mindy and so forth. So, uh, from the, the comedic side of it, I thought great choice. He wasn't so sure about the dramatic, you know, what, what he was going to do. He'd, he'd actually been in a movie called Seize the Day for, uh, on PBS, which was pretty somber 
affair. So I, I was worried that ooh, when he gets dramatic, it's going to get very precious and, and, and dark. But that didn't happen. So, so did, uh, did you have to, when Robin got bored, did you have to rewrite the script? Did you have to tell him to stop talking like Mork for Mork? No. No. no so no, he, uh, If anything, Robin, the first day, I think, was too tight. He was too bound up in the script. And Peter did said, let's just do an improv. Just come in. What would you like to teach the class? And Robin's going, I, I don't know. He said, mm, what do we, Robin said, well, maybe some Shakespeare. So we shot it, and that's, that's where we got the improv on the, or the scene with John Wayne and so forth, you know, doing Macbeth. So, uh, and right, once Robin realized, oh, yeah, I'm teaching, that's a di- even if the students aren't speaking back, it's a dialogue. I'm looking at them. They're giving back to me. He got it right away, and it just loosened him up and... He, that was the only thing we had to do to sort of get him to connect to the material. And now I found, I found one of the most powerful scenes for me was when Robin uh, took the students to look at the wall of mm-hmm. all the old people that, you know, all the students are now gone, yeah. sees the day. And it's not only, you know, it's his dialogue, but their facial expressions. Was that scene early in the script? Did you kind of like a center point scene? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, that's sort of the, the kickoff. Uh, the, originally, there was a scene in the classroom where he comes in and does the, oh, captain, my captain. He jumps on a desk right away. And we shot it, and both Peter and I just thought, God, this doesn't work. It's just too, it's too much. And the studio, we, we, said, we went back to his trailer and just thought, well, what are we going to do? And I thought, just have him walk out, in and out. And st- next day, we got a call from the studios. Oh, we love this thing of him jumping on the desk. And we said, no, we're getting rid of that. We're shooting something else. And so <laughs> the arguments began. But uh, fortunately, Peter was just one of those guys that said, I'm doing it my way, and if you don't like it, fire me. So. And you still got the death scene. Yeah, got yeah, the death scene. Well, that scene was, that yeah. would have been the second death scene. So one too many, I think. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the threes. Um, so we'll talk a little Robert Sean Leonard's character. Yeah. Uh, Neil, uh, we mentioned, so you knew his fate from the beginning? Was that the, kind of the centerpiece? When I was writing it, I knew, yeah, what was going to happen. And, uh, and then I remember when we were shooting, as we were getting ready to shoot it, Peter Weir said to me, you know, I had one conversation with Ingmar Bergman in my life. And Bergman just coincidentally said to me, if you ever kill off your main character, the audience will hate you. And so I said, oh, God. I said, well, we're killing off our main character. And Peter goes, I know. I'm terrified. <laughs> so I was, too, after that. Uh, but I don't know. And it, so every time I watch the movie, I kind of expect the audience to just walk out at that point. Uh, yeah, for me, the heartbreaking scene, obviously, is a suicide. But the scene where Robin Williams says, you have to talk to your dad. Yeah. And you know he's not going to. Yeah. And that was, for me, the most dramatic, painful, because uh, you kind of knew what the fate was, but you should please talk to your dad. Yeah. Is that something, uh, was that early on, too? You, you had that scene yeah, in there yeah. structurally? And what, you, what you saw is pretty much the structure of the movie from the get-go. And, uh, I mean, we made the cut, that, that three-page cut, and then, you know, lots of little things in between, but... but uh, you know, it wasn't. It wasn't. Uh, it was. It was interesting because when after the studio bought the script, actually sold this script and another script the same day, and uh, which was sort of, uh, and they bought it at midnight. And my agent called me at midnight and said they just bought Dead Poets Society. And I said, Oh my God! Well, what what do they want to do? What, what's their take on it? He said, uh, You you don't get to ask that question. You just you'll find out after when you get there in the meeting with them. And I said, well, I, I don't, I, you know, it's my baby. I've got it. He said, it's too bad. I've already closed the deal. 
So uh, about three days later, I got a, a big packet of notes in the, in the mail from them. It was about 40 pages, starting with the obligatory, we really love this project. But, uh, and the, the teacher is, is not the main character of this, this movie. He's, he's, it's, it's an ensemble, and we don't want to do an ensemble. So let's rejigger this thing. Let's start with the teacher back when he's in school, do about half the movie with him in school, and then we'll move to the second half, and let's get rid of most of these boys and just, you know, concept, we'll, we'll put a love interest in for the Robin Williams character and so forth. And I literally just sweat started pouring off of me. And uh, a couple of days later, we got the meeting at the studio and walked in, and Jeff Katzenberg was sitting at his desk, in par- in, uh, and the executives were all sitting in the little uh, in the, like, on the couch, and Jeff was reading through the notes. And I sat down, and he looked over and said, "Who did the notes, guys?" And they all said, "Well, they're kind of rough, but we did them as a team." And he said, "You're kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, aren't you?" And, they went, and he went, "Let's just make the movie." And we sat down and started talking about casting. And that is the only time that's ever happened to me. Where and just and I felt like just kissing his feet. But uh, <laughs> uh, so. we're going to talk about Ethan Hawke's storyline soon. But yeah. I want to Josh Charles first. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was amazing. I think it was a good because we need it was a good romance. Yeah, you go a little about the evolution of that and the, your your approach to that his story arc. You know, when I wrote the script, it, I, I sort of peopled the story with people that I knew all at different times in my life. But uh, and Josh was based on a kid I knew at college who was just crazy about this this girl, Chris, and uh, just went to in ridiculous lengths to woo her, and actually failed and walked out of our dorm. And said, "Guys, I'll send you a note where to send my stuff." Stuck out his thumb, never came back. So, <laughs> but anyway, he was he was the inspiration for that character and all the sort of antic stuff he did to try to win her. It was good. It was a nice way of him seizing the day. Yeah, got any of yeah. that little off because of the heavy material. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, we have a little special present. As, as you notice, if you got your programs, uh, Tom was wonderful enough to let us look at two pages of his script. Sounds uh, stingy at this point, doesn't it? No, it's, it, it is one, yeah. one of my favorite scenes. Yeah. So we're actually going to do a little scene reading uh, with our interns. Um, so we can t- and we're going to break down the scene because I think it's, it is one of the best scenes I've ever read. So I'm going to introduce Kim Denny, who will be reading the stage direction. Cool. Uh, Reading Mork from Ork, I mean, Rob Williams' character, Chase Logan. <laughs> and the challenging role played by Ethan Hawke, we read by Stephen Brenna. Look at Mr. Keating in such agony. Step up, lad, and let's put you out of your misery. All eyes are on Todd. He's dying inside. He stands and walks slowly to the front of the class like a condemned man on his way to his execution. Todd, have you prepared your poem? Todd shakes his head no. Mr. Anderson believes that everything he has inside of him is worthless and embarrassing. Correct, Todd? Isn't that your fear? Todd nerks, nods, jerkedly, yes. Then today, you will see that what is inside of you is worth a great deal. Keating strides to the blackboard. Rapidly, he writes, I sound my barbaric yawp over the, over the rooftops of the world. Walt Whitman. A yawp, for those who don't know, is a loud cry or yell. Todd, I would like you to give us a demonstration of a barbaric yop. A yop. <laughs> a barbaric yop. Keating pauses, then suddenly moves fiercely at Todd. Good God, boy, yell. Yop. Again, louder. Yop. 
Louder. Yeah. All right, very good. There's a barbarian in there after all. Keating claps. The class claps too. Todd, red-faced, swells a bit. Todd, there's a picture of Whitman over the door. What does he remind you of? Quickly, Anderson, don't think about it. A madman. A madman, perhaps he was. What kind of madman? Don't think, answer. A uh, crazy madman. Use your imagination. First thing that pops to your mind, even if it's gibberish. Uh, uh, sweaty tooth madman. Now there's this poet speaking. Close your eyes and think of the picture. Describe what you see now. I, I close my eyes. His image floats beside me. A sweaty tooth madman. A sweaty tooth madman with a stare that pounds my brain. Excellent. Have him act. Give it rhythm. His hands reach out and choke me. All the time he mumbles slowly. Truth. Truth is like a blanket that always leaves your feet cold. This brings chuckles from the class. This angers Todd. To hell with them. More about the blanket. Todd opens his eyes and addresses the class in defiant cadence. Stretch it. Pull it. It will never cover any of us. Kick at it. Beat at it. It will never be enough. Don't stop. From the moment we enter crying to the moment we leave dying, it will cover your head as you wail and cry and scream. Todd stands still for a long time. Both he and the students have felt the magic of what has just taken place. Neil starts applauding. Others join in. Todd swells, and for the first time, there is a hint of confidence in him. The applause stops. Keating walks to Todd. Don't forget this. Uh, how many aspiring writers are in this room? You write a scene like that, you're going to sell a screenplay. <laughs> uh, because if you look at the beginning, in two, in two pages, Ethan Hawke's character goes from a condemned man terrified to feeling the magic in the room. Mm -hmm. So the total power shift. Do you, can you talk a little about his character development and kind of the inspiration behind Yeah, Ethan? I mean, the Ethan Hawke character is, for me, was for me the main character of the movie. You know, it's his, it's, this is really his journey. It's about his growth as a character. And, and I guess from given that I was a guy who was terrified to stand up and, you know, speak in, in, at school. I mean, I had teachers who wouldn't even call on me in class because I was so pathetic. They just let, <laughs> let me go. So, um, so I think in some sense, you know, this was for me writing about what I would hope would have been at the time my journey from that shy guy to someone who could do something like this. So, uh, but it's hard because you're basically trying to focus on a character who doesn't say much and is sort of dramatically not part of the action, uh, which I think is why it evolved as a sort of an ensemble piece because you, know, you can't do a whole movie about someone who can barely talk, or at least I couldn't. So, um, so you know, the beginning of the movie establishes his, his shyness and then slowly we're watching him try to do what, what his, his friends are doing, which is sort of you know, take some instruction from Mr. Keating, and but he he's, can't do it. And here, he's finally forced to. And then he kind of goes back into his shell again, and at the end, he gets to be the one that, that stands out. The first one to stand up. And really, uh, you know, so the scene is really the shift between him and Robert Sean Leonard happens. Because yeah. he starts not standing up to his dad, not That's listening right. to Mr. Keating. So that was, that was really fascinating to me. Yeah. Uh, so you said it was a little about you. Yeah. Uh, I so mean, I think all scripts are really about you know the writer. I mean, it's all about me after all. But it's it's it it 
you know, that's you're writing about yourself one way or the other. Is it difficult to keep it objective if it's a character about you or, you know? Uh, not really, because once you sort of get into the fiction of it, you're, you're just dealing with the character. It's, you've hopefully named him something else. And it's, it's, uh, Did you have a Jack Keating in your life? Uh, I had two. I, and, you know, the, really the inspiration for this movie was sort of my love of those two teachers. One was a guy named Sam Pickering, who was my uh, sophomore in high school English teacher. Another was uh, Harold Clerman, who was a theater director and who I had lucky enough to study with in uh, acting and directing. So, so we're going to go back to your origins, your early days. Uh, how did, when you were writing, developing your craft, how did you support yourself and not starve? Um, I got lucky. I, when I started at this pl- a place called the Actors and Directors Lab, where this guy, Harold Clerman, was, was a sometimes teacher, uh, the first day there, uh, one of the students who was a bit older than the rest of us walked in and said, I just got a three-year contract to make educational films. I need a crew. Anybody done that? And I had, so I raised my hand and said, well, come to my office tomorrow and, and, uh, for an interview. So I went there, and it, it, he hired me, and it was great because we would make a, a, about a 10- or 12-minute educational film in three weeks and then have two weeks off so I had two weeks off out of every five to write yeah for and that I think he ended up with almost nine years of of contracts to do that so it was a great job for a writer so was your family supportive of your going the writing career or Uh, like welding or something you know reluctantly supportive terrified (laughs) you know really and uh, because at a certain point you know it's too late to go to law school or medical school or any of that and you know it's and in Hollywood you're either I mean you sort of in or out and uh, so for a long time I was out and my parents were going what's going on you know there's no uh, these these horror films you're writing and these options and so forth are not, not going to sustain you and eventually you're going to have to stop making these educational films. So, but uh, And in some way not having a backup might have been a good thing because it just forced me into a kind of you know mode where I was just writing all the time. That's th- a, so how many scripts did you write as a, before you sold your first script? Uh, well, I, Dead Poet Society, I think, was my fifth script. And then I wrote, I think my seventh script was a thing called Love at Second Sight, which so, which sold the same day as, as this. It sold first that day. And uh, so five, four, this was the fifth. And uh, so studio, you mentioned a little about, you know, the Dead Poets. Do you ever have to battle studios when your scripts or fight back for the studio or wish you could, <laughs> wish you could have fought back more and protect uh, yeah, yeah. one of your stories? And You're fighting all the time. And, you know, as I said, I was shy. So I think from my perspective, a writer was great because I, j- I thought I'll just write a script, put my, you know, and send it in and I'll never have to go in and have a meeting. I'll never have to, you know, and... What a joke that was. But so you, you have to go in and, you know, you're going to have a thousand people read your script at a studio before they make it. And you're going to have to defend everything you, you did in there, you know, from somebody. So you better know why you did it or figure it out and, and 
fight for what you believe in. And, uh, you know, they talk about the process being sort of a death of a thousand cuts, which I think happens. Oh, just, just take out this little scene, just do that, and, you know, pretty soon you don't even remember why you wrote it or why they're making it. So I think in the early days I fought for everything, and I kind of wish that I had ste- kept doing that. Uh, uh, people kept saying to me, you know, you should just choose your battles, but I actually don't believe that. I think if you have to, I mean, if, if they're right, you change, but if, and you should be open to that, because you get a lot of great ideas from, from everywhere. But uh, I think that the stuff you believe in, you know, it's better to go down fighting and let somebody else ruin it than, than do it yourself. Are you a big fan of outlining or backstories or what is your? Like- I'm not. A, I'm not a fan of it, but I do it. I mean, it's. It's. Uh, I'd, I'd rather not. You know, I'd rather just dictate the script and be done. But but uh, no, I do a. I, I generally take a lot of notes. Just put them in a computer file. Eventually, I sort of slice them up. They're like cards, except that I'll have 150 pages of them. And then I, I put them in a big stack, and I look at the first one and go, oh, this isn't part of the first of the movie. This one goes in the middle, etc. And then I've got three piles, which are the f- f- uh, Act One, Act Two, Act Three. And then I start figuring out what's the beginning and so forth. And pretty soon, the entire floor of the room is covered with these strips. And while I'm moving them around, I get other ideas and I'll put them in. And so, and then I just paste them onto pages of, or, or scotch tape them onto pages of, of uh, uh, in, into a booklet. And essentially, it's done at that point. I mean, it's just go through. It's like write, automatic writing. It's written itself. So it's it's kind of a relaxing way to do it for me. Uh, well, I'd like to talk about an autobiography script you wrote, uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> what was the evolution of that? Uh, right. That was a rewrite. Rewrite. Yeah. 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 Uh, they, they, it was actually originally going to be a drama, called, okay. and, uh, but, uh, and they were going to do all the, uh, the special effects sort of analog. You know, there was going to be a guy in a bee suit. There was going to be a, an, a, another person in an ant suit, and Disney was very skeptical about that. So they made the director and crew shoot that, and when they saw it, they fired everybody—the writer, the director, the whole the whole thing. At which point, they then realized that they had Rick Moranis for one more week, and he could walk off the picture. So, and Rick was saying, "I want it to be a comedy." So, they said, "Okay, you got a week." turn this into a comedy. So, yeah. <laughs> do you, do you, <laughs> Thank do you, you very much. Did yeah. you enjoy did you enjoy writing comedy or was it uh, kind of fun? Or? Uh, the, this thing, Love at Second Sight, that I had sold was a comedy. So I, I enjoyed it. I mean, it's, it's uh, uh, you know, doing that in a week was not the most enjoyable thing in my life. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I was so nervous, you know, my dog was throwing up. It was, but, 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 uh, uh, but it was kind of fun. You know, you're, you're pressed to the wall and you just, you do the best you can. And you got a Disney ride. Huh? You got a Disney ride out of it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, ride. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, That's right. Uh, so is there any other aspects of filmmaking that interest you other than writing? Well, like, the, if you want to get producing and directing. Which yeah, I mean, I, I tried my hand at directing. I directed a movie called Eight Heads in a Duffel Bag. Uh, looking to try it again and uh, it was a pretty nightmarish experience because of uh, <coughs> Joe Pesci but um, <laughs> the uh, uh, you know the, the guy that he plays in Goodfellas that crazy you know psychotic guy and the same guy that he plays in Casino that's him you know and, <laughs> and so uh, you bring that to a movie shoot and it, it makes life really interesting so um, uh, 
but hopefully, you know, he won't be on my next movie, so maybe it'll maybe it'll be a better experience. So you like to do? An, uh, you like to direct another film? I, I'd like to. Yeah. Your own yeah. script or something? Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, well, we always end our evening with a special question. So, uh, can you describe? We're since we're the awesome public theater. Can you describe a movie theater experience you had as a child that inspired you, or something a fond memory of going to the movies? Fond memories. Um, <laughs> I mean, the the most dramatic memory I, re- I have is is seeing a movie called Horrors of the Black Museum, which <laughs> which started with a woman receiving a gift of binoculars and going, oh, how sweet. Charlie sent me binoculars. And she goes to look out the window and twists the binoculars, and when she pulls them out, these two nails have shot <laughs> out of the binoculars into her eyes, and her friends standing there going, ah! That was the beginning of the movie. That, that had a, an effect on me. So, yeah. <laughs> Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you asked the question. I asked the question. That was my fault. I set that one okay. up. Uh, yeah. Well, I signed in to you, so I'd like to thank Tom Shulman for coming. That's so wonderful. Thank you, thank thank you, you. so much. Um, again, thanks to these wonderful Apollo Theater interns who uh, you can see are behind the cameras and shot this and produced this event. Uh, we will return on November 29th with 10 Things I Hate About You with Kirsten Smith and Karen McCullough Lutz, the writers of that movie, Legally Blonde. So they're coming, and yes, they are crazy. So we hope to see you at other future Polytheater events. Thank you for coming. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.